0: This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Tuesday, January the 23rd, 2024. Welcome to Now with Dave Brandt Hit the horns and go. Up on the show today, Sight Unseen debuted on CTV over the weekend. Alex Smythe shares his interview with actors Dolly Lewis and again Darcy. It's been almost three years since Greyhound shut down. That means there's been a big decrease in intercity bus routes. Reporter Megan Gilmore has more insight on the story. And it's another edition of the Weekly News Quiz. Karen McGee back in the mix to compete against Alex Smythe and Brock Richardson. The game of musical chairs on the News Quiz continues. had an experience yesterday in the afternoon. Went to the dental hygienist. She beat me up real good. The one thing that always strikes me about dental hygienists, they're stabbing you in the gums over and over and over again. And they're like, you're bleeding a lot. Yes, because you're stabbing me in the gums. Let's get to the top story of the day. The federal liberals continue their caucus retreat in Montreal. Mia Rabson has the agenda.
1: Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Joly says Canada is preparing for any outcome in the next U.S. election in November. But the Cabinet today will hear from a panel of experts on Canada-U.S. relations with a strong focus on what could happen if former President Donald Trump retakes the White House. Industry Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne says the Canada-U.S. supply chain is more integrated than ever before and millions of jobs in both countries now depend on it. Still, Laura Dawson, the Executive Director of the Future Borders Coalition, will tell the Cabinet today it needs to get ahead. of expected attacks on Canada's trading practices from Team Trump. Mia Rabson, The Canadian Press,
0: Montreal. And former President Trump is widely expected to win the New Hampshire primary today, one step closer to the Republican nomination. The federal NDP is holding their own caucus retreat in Edmonton. Brenda Molina, Navidad, has more.
2: The NDP caucus is set to talk about health care, affordability and the party's next national campaign during their retreat in Edmonton as MPs get ready for Parliament to return next week. The party is also expected to discuss their confidence and supply agreement with the minority Liberal government. That deal will see the NDP support the Liberals on confidence and budgetary matters until 2025 in return for movement on key priorities. The NDP touts the federal dental care program and a temporary doubling of the GST rebate as items it has achieved in the nearly two years since the deal was signed. Brenda Molina-Navidav, The Canadian Press.
0: And here's one from the food file. Restaurants Canada wants the BC government to intervene on a policy that affects chicken prices. Michelle Zarekian explains.
3: The B.C. Chicken Marketing Board is proposing a new pricing formula to determine the live price of chicken in the province. It's currently awaiting approval, but Restaurants Canada and several other food industry associations are sounding the alarm on the board's proposal. Estimates for what the formula change would amount to vary, but Restaurants Canada claims chicken prices would go up by an average of 10% for consumers. The situation illustrates the pressure that all levels of the food industry are under to keep prices stable for shoppers. Michelle Zed again, the Canadian Press, Toronto.
0: And one more story from the food file. Loblaws will continue to offer 50% off soon to expire food. The company is backtracking on their plan to reduce the discount that got discovered last week by CBC. And then they were roundly criticized and mocked. So a little bit of public pressure got them to... Uh, Backtrack on that policy. Let's get to the daily polls at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Monday, you were asked for. Positive winter vibes. What's something that your region does to create local winter flavor? A couple examples that I gave you to vote on, although you weren't explicitly told to vote on them. 50% of you said the Rideau Canal. 50% of you said ice hotels in Quebec. 0% said Northern Lights events. Over on Facebook, Kelly writes in Igloo Fest and Nuit Blanche in Montreal. Excellent answers. Lien chimes in Winterlicious in Toronto and... John comments Kingstonlicious in Kingston. And just FYI, in about 40 minutes, Toronto community reporter Mara Hutchinson is stopping by to talk a little bit about winterlicious. So there you go, a little bit of continuity, connective tissue from segment to segment across the show. Speaking of connective tissue, the impact of Greyhound shutting down operations in Canada will be explored in segment three with Megan Gilmore in the lens of more broadly, intercity bus travel, but it makes for a decent daily poll because it's been almost three years since Greyhound shut down bus service between Canadian cities and I really wanna know how that's affected you and your region. A lot, a little, or not at all, and of course, I'm hoping that you're going to give a more elaborate response than just the option because I'd like to hear how it's affecting you and your region. Alex Smythe, for me, this is certainly a matter of a little. There's lots of train service between Ottawa and Toronto, and there's some buses available between Toronto and Montreal, but I have been caught up in via rail shutdowns and and airplane shutdowns where maybe a bus would have been a really feasible, usable way to get out of the city, and it wasn't there for me. So to say a lot would be disingenuous, but a little sort of hits the right spot.
4: Yeah, you know, for me, once upon a time, I was so reliant on Greyhound buses when I was in uh, school in Peterborough at Trent University, that was my uh, method of getting back to Toronto and by virtue of Toronto, uh, Burlington, I would take the Greyhound from downtown Peterborough, go from Simcoe Street all the way down to the Bay Street terminal, and then get either picked up there or transferred to the the go uh, system from there and make my way back home. I used it like at least a couple times every every month, if not uh, every couple months. So it, it was a very familiar process and feeling for me. And when I I first heard that you know years ago when they decided to kind of end service, I thought, oh wow, this is this is going to mean a lot because you had either the go uh, the go bus or the Greyhound, and the go bus was never all that reliable. So it's these smaller communities, as you mentioned, Dave. You, yeah, Kingston, Montreal, Ottawa those are still on a main train route. Those are on those different kind of hubs that you can still access, but it's those smaller communities, the Peterboroughs, the Lindsays, uh, kind of these areas where you don't have that built-in infrastructure, that buses really served a vital purpose. And when you get one of the lifelines and remove them from those community, access to them is a lot harder. For me, currently, I would say it's a little to not at all because I just don't visit those communities anymore. But when I was a student, this would have impacted me greatly beyond
0: anything else. Yeah, you're right. You're back in the transit core uh, because we're lucky to be in some of these transit cores. Laura Bain, one of the greatest memories of my early adult life was taking a Greyhound bus from Montreal to Fredericton, New Brunswick because of how limited a lot of the train service in the Atlantic provinces was. So I'm curious, as Greyhound shut down, maybe the impact on you, maybe the impact on the greater area around Halifax, but what's that impact been like for you and the region in the last couple of years?
5: So to my knowledge, Dave, that's interesting that you say that Greyhound has never served Atlantic uh, Canada. It was uh, It's currently, we do have a bus service called Maritime Bus, which took over for Acadia Lines bus, which shut down in 2012. So maybe uh, you know, it actually changed over to Acadia Lines when you got into New Brunswick. I'm not
0: sure, but uh, two, two, uh, yeah. 2002 was a long time ago.
5: 2002 was a long time ago and perhaps it was Greyhound at that time for the last um, you know certainly for the last decade or so here it's just been maritime bus and they really did struggle during the pandemic uh, and they were on the brink of shutting down but then all three maritime provinces got together and actually put in close to a million dollars in funding to keep the bus service alive which I think was a really good decision because we don't have much in the way of train service here and for folks who aren't able to drive apart from those um, you know buses between cities there really is no way to get from one place to another so uh, I guess I would say because we don't have Greyhound buses here we we uh, haven't in my kind of living memory I would say that that in particular has not affected me at all but uh, were we to shut down maritime bus. I think that that would impact myself and quite a number of other folks, including those with disabilities that maybe don't have access to driving themselves.
0: You see, that's exactly the regional perspective that I was looking for on that one. And Megan Gilmore is going to offer a bit more perspective from a national point of view in about 20 minutes on the show. In the meantime, you can vote on the poll at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can also chime in via email feedback at ami.ca feedback at ami.ca or pick up the phone and give the show a call 1-866-509-4545 coming up next Sight Unseen made its debut on CTV after a very compelling football game on Sunday night Alex Smythe had a chance to catch up with a couple of the stars of the show Dolly Lewis and Agam Darshi this is now with Dave Brown on AMI TV and in streaming audio at amiplus.ca Welcome back, it's now with Dave Brown on ami Sight Unseen is a new drama on CTV, made its debut on Sunday right after the Bills and Chiefs game, which I definitely watched every single second of. The series follows a detective who suddenly loses her sight. She adapts with an online visual assistant. The series stars Dolly Lewis and Agam Darshi. And Alex Smythe, you had a chance to catch up with these two actors. What drew them to the project?
4: Yeah, so uh it basically it was really about kind of the unique nature of the story, the relationship. You mentioned it there, Dave, that, you know, Dolly Lewis's character Tess, she's a detective, she suddenly loses her sight and has to kind of learn to navigate this new world of uh, living with sight loss. And so the relationship that really forms between Dolly's character and Agam's character is done through the online kind of uh, visual assistance. So think of like a Be My Eyes type of platform is really how they're connecting. And that was really, something that drew both of them to the project and, and Dolly spoke about how, you know, you're not only seeing this unique relationship uh, forming between these two characters, but you're seeing a more authentic representation of sight loss because she has her own lived experience with vision loss. And so seeing something where you're seeing a, a female lead that has that and is it's kind of learning to navigate this world really kind of made her want to try and, and pursue this role and she shares more.
6: Oh, my gosh. So many things. Um, First reading the script for Sight Unseen, I was really struck by the um, unusual relationships that were being developed here um, through technology. I hadn't seen anything like that before. Um, And seeing a female lead who was dealing with some divergence in her sight was really exciting because I've experienced that in my own life and I haven't seen it very often on TV. So I was thrilled to be able to dive into that.
0: Alex, you mentioned the way in which the series visualizes vision loss, or visualizes the approach of this device that's kind of like be my eyes and the virtual assistants. What did the stars think of that approach?
4: Yeah, because if you haven't had a chance to check out the show uh, yet, like beyond just that representation, they also like brought, uh, bring you into the the character Tass's, uh point of view and 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 show you what she is experiencing within that moment, whether it's like severe glares or a really intense blurriness. So they really wanted to visually represent what the sight loss was like. And they they really saw this as okay, this is unique. This is something that you're not you're not finding on other representations of vision loss within media and television that they wanted to really open the doors So for someone who may not have that experience, may not have that knowledge, it's like, oh, this is what the character is really experiencing. It's not just, oh, it's, everything's black or you can see everything clear. There is some vision, but it's still heavily uh, kind of uh, restricted. And and yeah. so they thought this was something that was so unique and, and Dolly spoke more about it. I
6: thought that was fascinating and um, a really courageous choice to make. You know, there's so much to put into the time allotted per episode. Um, and, you know, uh, having such variety in terms of the lenses and the points of view, like we have Sonny's point of view through the spy camera, we have different narrative cameras, and then we have Tess's actual vision. Um, I thought the the decision to include that so that viewers could understand a little bit, you know, they're not just watching my body move through a scene. They're also seeing it from my point of view. Oh, that's why she might stumble this way because now I get it. She, she really can't see that part over there. Or that's why she can see that. that That Other things that there's, yeah, I totally agree that there was actually a lot more um, vision available on different creative, um, and, Brave is a challenge.
1: And I think you brought up a really good point as well. Like, Dolly and I were talking about how, um, you know, there's a spectrum of sight divergence, you know, and generally in media, it's either you cannot see or you can't see, yeah. you know, and they show it in a very kind of like binary, binary way. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that's what's just so impressive is that it's like, no, no, these are, it's a spectrum.
0: This is going to sound familiar Alex but there was quite a bit of consultation done with the community in regard to authentic portrayal what did the stars make of that collaboration
4: oh they they said it made uh, all the difference because uh, not only uh, as i mentioned yon dali is part of the community but even the creatives behind the scenes one of the co-creators of the series is uh lived with vision loss as well and then they also had a number of consultants a number of people who were working on on the team and 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 kind of collaborating on this project all brought their experience and the the great thing is you and I know Dave and we've talked about it many times and and even as agam mentioned in that clip like sight loss is not uh it, it's a spectrum it, it's, oh, it's yeah. not just a, a one or a, like yes or no you know so it's it's that collaboration and is that wealth of knowledge of different types of sight loss different types of vision that can really bring a a, a real like authentic take to, to the screen and what's interesting is they speak about uh, how the uh, co-creator, who lives with vision loss, and very vocal about it, it, just the small subtlety and changes behind the scenes in the actual production process, how it had an impact on them as well. So I'll let them explain more.
1: Two showrunners, Pico um, and Karen, and Karen has is very vocal about her her journey with her sight throughout the years and how many surgeries she's had. And, you know, it was really beautiful. I read something that she said where she, I mean, sometimes you would see her and she would have to have her scripts like this close to her face. And because there were so many different people on set, in front and behind the camera that had um, sight uh, impairments, sight, who were sight-diverse, di- um, they made the scripts larger, they made the sites larger, you know, like little things like that, where she said, I feel like I was part of a tribe of I was with other people that were like me and I wasn't the weirdo that had my script up to here. I was actually with the people who were like me. So I, I think st- moments like that were really special and important. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, uh, the consultants that helped me
6: uh, and helped everybody on the show, the showrunners, I know they were in close contact with Yvonne Felix, who's an amazing consultant here actually in Toronto. Um, she's a, a wonderful woman. She um, she opened up about her experience to me. And, you know, every single person's experience is different. But it was interesting to hear her talk because her um Her sight loss is more severe than mine. So hearing how she goes about her day in a way that's very different for me was incredibly valuable input to make me feel like I'm doing right by this character's
0: experience. Alex, that backtracks to an idea that you and I explored last week in the Daily Poll about the overall representation of disability in the media, going from advocacy to consulting to creation to casting. Maybe spectrum is the word of the day here in regards to disability representation, that it actually takes a lot of stops along the, uh, along the trough before you truly find what representation should look like in media.
4: Absolutely, Dave, and and obviously, you know, there's a lot that is uh, uh, kind of uh, portrayed and and, and, uh, the results get put on screen, but it's also the things that happen behind the scenes. And AMI is also working to really uh, do this with the the work that we're doing, the projects that we're involved with. It's it's getting that representation, that involvement behind the scenes. It's getting that experience, that exposure for folks from the community, and also folks who have never really interacted or don't have the knowledge of uh, working with folks with disabilities, how to make sets more accessible, and this was something that I, I found was very interesting. They both Dolly and Agam ex- expand on this idea that you know it was the crews behind the scenes who may not necessarily have had a lot of experience with the vision loss community beforehand, but they really embraced like this uh, kind of making sure that okay we're going to make this an accessible, inclusive space, and and they had some great examples of how the crew really went above and beyond to make sure everyone was welcome on set.
6: <laughs> yeah, and other funny little... Like and I have to say, everybody the entire crew jumped on board and were curious and supportive and enthusiastic. I remember walking to the soundstage one day, um, and this amazing locations PA took me on a little tour and she said, i I put me on tape on all the different doors with different mm-hmm. symbols. So because it's very dark in the sound stage and I have night blindness, she was like, This might help you to navigate, you know, are you going into the soundstage next door or are you going to the bathroom? Yeah. And
1: on our trailer as well. There was yeah. a- big X There's a big X and, and somebody said to me oh it's for Dolly so that when she's going to her trailer she knows which one it is because there were so many of them yeah. so yeah it was uh, little details like that, yeah, that it was felt really- like a community
0: Yeah, Alex, the little things are the big things when it comes to not just broad policy on accessibility, but day-to-day experience and things like markers. That's probably something that you and I are a little familiar with as well. I do like to create markers for myself uh, all over the place in terms of orientation in new spaces
4: yeah for me it's always like it's always a challenge right because i can have all the markers but with my lack of peripheral vision may not be able to (laughs) see them all that often (laughs) but but if it's a big enough x and if i one day am fortunate enough to have a trailer for some project i mean hey i i would appreciate a big x on the side of my trailer
0: yeah, my uh, my parents when I was a teenager, I, I don't know if this was deliberate or undeliberate, but they put a green light bulb in our uh, front porch light, and I wonder if that was just their way of saying, like, Dave, look for the green light when you're coming home at two in the morning, as opposed to trying to uh, guess and test a little bit. That might have been a little bit of overkill, but I would have appreciated that at their house in Arizona a couple years ago when they live in a uh, suburb where all the houses look the same. I, I could have used I could have used a little extra guidance. I mean, hey, I would
4: never say no to a, a another colored light. You know, that, that's that's it's a thought that counts, right? And yeah. even if it doesn't necessarily uh, be as effective or or as necessary, as maybe it, <laughs> hey, it's an easy marker, you know. You, you you always know look for
0: the green yeah. and you can also direct other people as well. Look for the green light if yeah. you have you know. universal, <laughs> universal design. Look for the green yeah. light. Like, there you go. And uh, for fans of The Great Gatsby, they might uh, pick up on a little bit of a reference there as well. Alex, thank you for this. Talk to you next segment. Alex's full interview with the stars of Sight Unseen will be available later this week to stream at amiplus.ca. amiplus.ca a little bit later this week for the full interview. And you can catch the show Mondays, 10 p.m. Eastern time on ctv that being sight unseen coming up next it's been about three years since greyhound stopped operations in canada which meant there's been a significant decrease in intercity bus routes megan gilmore will share a little bit more on the story this is now with dave brown on amitv Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. A reminder about the daily poll at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. It's been about three years since Greyhound shut down bus routes between Canadian cities. How has that impacted you and your region? A lot? A little? Or not at all? Of course, with that decrease in intercity bus routes, it's left quite a few Canadians stranded, and it's an issue that reporter Megan Gilmore has been covering. Megan is a reporter with Canadian Affairs. Hey, good morning, Megan.
7: Good morning, Dave.
0: Megan, what's your reaction to that daily poll? I know this isn't just about right. Greyhound, but Greyhound was obviously a big piece of the puzzle.
7: Right. Well, first of all, I'm honoured that the daily poll was inspired by this segment. <laughs> um, I would say my region... Probably at least a little. Uh, So I was in Toronto when Greyhound left. Um, I'm in Ottawa now. And yeah, like there isn't, busses i mean like i guess there's mega bus and we'll get into this a bit more in the segment but yeah it's yeah it's been it's been impacted
0: yeah i I think for someone who's sort of in that toronto core through montreal and ottawa Mm -hmm. it's not a massive impact because there are a lot of options that you have available to you but that's perhaps as you nationalize the issue there are a lot of pockets of this country where there are big problems with bus service intercity bus service not public transit Mm intercity bus service
7: Yes, yes, totally. Uh, So that's really the big picture we're talking about today is the lack of inner city buses, which is buses that go between cities. And I can hear... All of you, including myself, say, "But Megan, there's lots of problems with public municipal transit." To which I say, "I know. I live in Ottawa."
0: But <laughs> we can walk and point... chew. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. same
7: time. Yeah, but the point of this segment right now is about the bus services that go between cities. Now, in May of last year, a uh, uh, House of Commons committee did a report on the lack of inner city bus services. And according to some of the people who testified in the, in front of this committee, before the pandemic, there was more than a thousand bus companies in Canada, which blew my mind. I think this would also include like coach services, like tour bus operators, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But more than a thousand bus companies. And since then uh, hundreds have left cutting potentially thousands of routes, which means that across this country as a whole, there is a great lack of inner-city bus services.
0: Where are the areas that are most impacted by this?
7: Sure, that's a really great question. So there's an obvious answer and a not-so-obvious answer, and the first obvious answer is Western Canada. So Greyhound, when they began to leave Canada, that actually started in 2018 when they cut their Western services. Um. So think like anywhere west of Ontario. Uh, that's what we're talking about. There's actually a map. Um, that I found when I was researching this article. Uh, there's a, a a geographer who's mapped out all the transit routes. In Canada that he can find. So buses, trains, ferries, this whole type of thing. And he'll talk about like once you get to certain parts of Saskatchewan and Alberta, like there's just nothing. Like he's like, there aren't buses. Um, but then, so that, that's a really obvious one. But then also some places in southwestern Ontario or southern Ontario in general, um, there's not bus services. So he pointed to the example of take London, Ontario and the nearby city of St. Thomas and a lot of people who, like, work in London, live in St. Thomas, vice versa. There's no bus between those two cities. Yeah. Uh, So there are, like, really, if you're not in, like, I hate to say it, if you're not in, like, Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal, Quebec City, and maybe some parts um, of Vancouver area, you're really kind of out of luck.
0: Yeah, it's it it is very much an urban rural issue but has mm-hmm. significant impact on urban individuals as well if they need to get anywhere especially if you consider people who might be more economically uh, disadvantaged or people who don't have as many transportation options and I think that's fundamentally why this issue matters.
7: Oh yeah, totally, totally. And like they to be fair, like there are smaller regional companies who are kind of stepping in and filling in the gaps. So Atlantic Canada, there is the Maritime uh, Bus Company that services New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and PEI. And when you talk to that company about like you know like, what are the things that you do, some things that they'll talk about is carrying freight and cargo, like carrying blood, like blood from donor clinics gets on a bus and it gets sent same day service. Why? Because transportation policy impacts healthcare. Um, It impacts the ability of people to go to school, uh, especially in post-secondary education, right? They hop on a bus and go to college, Go to university, go to a trade school type thing. Um, It also it's a big safety concern, particularly when we talk about missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Uh, One of the key one of the findings of that commission was the need for intercity bus service and for women or anybody who's fleeing a domestic violence situation, getting out, having a reliable bus and you're not going to be stranded on a highway in the middle of nowhere and that's a really big big safety concern um particularly when you're talking about missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and then basically employment like if you can't like if you're restricted for your job options based on where you live
0: and what the bus services are for you someone who's staying very busy with a lot of the reporting you're doing and you're covering a lot of different Things so mm-hmm. you had a chance to take a look at corporate initiatives and how they're shifting in the direction of diversity, equity, yep. and inclusion. This is something that the founder of Completely Inclusive, Kelly braun Johnson, has explored on the show. And you've actually got some data here in regards to something that was done by TD Bank.
7: Yeah, so I'll I'll take a step back and kind of just set this up, There's been a lot of shifts in the world of corporate diversity, equity, and inclusion Um, in 2020 after the murder of George Floyd. uh, There's a lot more public interest around that. That is kind of shifting a bit right now uh, with some large corporations like Google and Meta announcing that they're laying off uh, good portions of teams that were devoted to these topics. But at the same time, TD Bank recently became the first Canadian bank and one of the first companies in Ghana to re, to publicly release a diversity audit uh that's the numbers of women or black and indigenous employees in the company uh, and then all, like also looked at like corporate like across TD Bank what are their hiring practices what are their training practices how do they talk about diversity uh that type of things so um They focused on a few data points. One is that TD had exceeded a commitment it made in 2020 to double the number of Black employees in North America who are in vice president or higher roles by 2022. So they did meet that goal. Uh, But they still are working on meeting the goals of having 45% of senior positions in Canada be filled by women by 2025. So they're working on it, and the auditor says that they they could make it Um, and they also have a goal of increasing the number of indigenous black or other racialized employees by 25 percent and the report says that while they haven't met that target they are likely on track to meet
0: it. Megan on the surface transparency and data points are generally a good thing but there are a few people Mm -hmm. that you spoke to in your reporting who took some issues with these audits what are the problems they laid out?
7: Sure. So one of the uh, like just general facts about it is, yeah, it gives you a lot of good data, but what are you gonna do with it, right? So like if you don't do anything with the data, what good was this audit that you did? Or if you're just using the data to reinforce a narrative that you want to tell about your company from like a corporate stakeholder perspective, and not actually a a
0: marketing tool, not a policy tool. tool, right?
7: And not just letting the numbers tell you what they're telling you and not asking your employees not asking the people who actually work in the company and are on the day-to-day uh ground floor levels asking them like hey what like what are you seeing what are you not seeing what actually is our company culture like that that's a really big big point here another concern that people may have is that Under this umbrella of diversity, inclusion, equity, you could argue that the results from audits fit into diversity. They're literally telling you, paint by numbers, who do we have in different groups? And some people would say that that's not necessarily inclusion, because there can be a sense for some individuals that they have been, quote unquote, token hires. They were hired because of the color of their skin. They were hired because they're a female, that type of thing. So, Um, that feeling of I'm only hired because for for me, I might feel like I'm only hired because I'm a woman or I'm only hired because I have a disability. Then you, if you're in that position, you may feel like you have to work extra, extra, extra hard to prove that I actually have skills and I was hired because I know how to do this job. Um, and a lot of, one of the individuals I spoke to said that in her experience, a lot of people who are hired, in this quote-unquote tokenism fashion, don't actually last in a company that long. They'll leave after about maybe three years just because of the burden of often being the only or the first person. Uh, in the company that reflects that demographic
0: group. Advocacy fatigue. That was something Mm -hmm. that uh, the columnist Shane Baker talked about a couple of weeks ago. You see all these pieces, they connect together, Megan. (laughs) We both put our fingers together there to connect the pieces as we put our hands together uh, digitally afar in the province of Ontario. Megan, I'm going to choose my words carefully a bit here because I don't want to draw too many broad conclusions. But... In the aggregate, Canadian banks have done a pretty good job of hiring people with disabilities at some entry-level positions. I was once one of those people. There are other people who are on the show who were once some of those people as well. But how does disability fit into the broader conversation around some of these DEI shifts in corporations and some of these audits that are being done?
7: Sure. So um, the Employment Equity Act, uh, which is a federal Piece of legislation in Canada does identify people with disabilities as a group that often has barriers to employment, and they say companies need to work to address that. When you go through some of these audits, like TD's audits, or like some law firms will put together like big overall reports about the state of corporate diversity in Canada based on uh, reporting from publicly shared, publicly traded companies. You don't see a lot of employees with disabilities in general reflected in the data, um, in terms of a percentage point. You particularly don't see many of them in higher level
0: roles, so board members. Such a such such an important like caveat to underline. There, it's it's probably one of the biggest caveats to underline.
8: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
7: Yes. Yeah, and it's very similar. Like the numbers are. Off of my head, they're pretty similar to the numbers of Indigenous employees who are in those same positions. So while publicly we hear a lot about getting more women in, um, in specific positions, and full disclosure, I'm a woman. I'm, you know, I'm pretty like in favor of that. Um, or people of different ethnic groups. Um Again, I'm in favor of this. You don't hear a lot of broader cultural conversation around Indigenous employees or employees who have disabilities. And I think that is something that people should just question a little bit more and ask, like, why do we talk about certain DEI initiatives more than we talk about
0: others? Yeah. Hey, Megan, really interesting stuff here. Thank you for breaking down some of this data. Have a great day. Uh, Talk to you later.
7: All right, bus systems might be connected in this program, but in this country, but contributors on this program are. So thanks for having me. There
0: yeah, I like that's a great job landing the plane. That's reporter Megan Gilmore. You can read her articles online. CanadianAffairs.news, CanadianAffairs.news. Check out Megan's work. It's really, really good. In sixty seconds, Alex Smythe has the weather story of the day. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your morning business minutes.
3: Canada's main stock index edged higher yesterday, but lagged behind its peers on Wall Street. Toronto's TSX index gained 17 points to close at 20,924. New York's Dow Jones average climbed 138 points, and the NASDAQ added 49. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index lost 23 points. Hong Kong's Hang Seng index surged. 392 points, or 2.6%. And our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 74.19 cents U.S. West Fraser Timber Company says it is permanently closing its sawmill in Fraser Lake, B.C. after an orderly wind-down. The Vancouver-based company says it's unable to access economically viable fiber in the region. West Fraser says the closure will affect about 175 employees, and it will mitigate the impact by providing work opportunities at its other operations. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo.
0: Thank you very much, Karen. Let's go from business to weather with Alex Smythe. Alex, the roller coaster of the mercury continues across the country. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've
4: been experiencing this Arctic winter blast over the last few weeks. Well, I have good news. That is going to start to dissipate starting today into later in the week where the warm Pacific air mass is going to make its way across the country bringing warm and really above seasonal conditions. So let's start from the west side of the country and we'll make our way east. So starting in Alberta, the Calgary is projected to be four degrees today and the high will be seven degrees come Sunday. In Edmonton, you'll start to see a break in the freezing conditions starting Thursday. So they will, be getting upwards of 10 to 20 degrees above normal in Edmonton. That's gonna begin Thursday into next week. Even Northern Alberta will experience some of that warmth because Grand Prairie is gonna be five degrees uh, this week and Fort McMurray plus four, that would be 14 to 16 degrees above seasonal conditions. As we make our way eastward, we'll go to Winnipeg next. And Winnipeg, we'll see By Sunday, it will get to a high of plus two, not as warm, but that's still going to be 10 to 20 degrees, roughly above seasonal conditions in that area. And as we make our way more eastward, Ontario, Toronto, because Toronto is the center of the universe, we can't do any weather report without Toronto. uh, By Friday, even though it's snowing in the region now, by Friday, you could see highs of five degrees. So. It's a bit of the, the ray of sunshine in the weather report that even if it's snowy, a bit cold right now, just look forward to later in the week. You'll start to get some relief above seasonal conditions, above freezing conditions in most of the country. So you can thank that to a warm Pacific Air mass as it makes its way from the West Coast all the way to
0: the East Coast, Dave. But don't forget the waterproof boots or else you're going to have some yeah. very wet socks. Alex, thank you for this. Coming up next, Toronto's food scene. Back to the center of the universe is going to light up later this month. Community reporter Mara Hutchinson tells you about winterlicious. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Cineplex Junction opened its doors in Mississauga last year. It's more than a movie theater. It wants to be an entertainment hub. Toronto community reporter Mara Hutchinson had a chance to check out the Junction. Hey, good morning, Mara. Nice to chat with you today
9: morning how are you i'm
0: pretty good just before you and i discuss a night out at the movies uh forget mississauga you're not in toronto at all right now nothing in the gta for you you're in san francisco why do you want to get out of town
9: well i it was actually my dad's birthday last week it was his 65th birthday oh wow Yeah, so we, his entire family is here in the Bay Area, and we just thought it'd be such a nice treat for him to welcome the 65th year.
0: Oh, that's amazing.
9: Yeah, and start the great year off as well here and just kind of be with family.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. Well, happy birthday, happy belated birthday to your dad. Okay, let's hop on the plane and come back to Mississauga. What motivated you to visit the Junction?
9: Well, I think because at this time right now, it's really, really cold and you kind of want to just, you know, get your kids out and just see what's new and just kind of entertain them. Right. And it's just literally like maybe 10 minutes away, 10 minutes drive from my place. So we went there
0: one of the connective tissues here in our conversation that you and I have been having for a few months now is that you are someone who has a sense of adventure you 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 go to new places how do you feel about visiting mm-hmm. new places
9: I'm not going to lie and this goes with places around our area in Toronto or or other countries it's it gives me a lot of anxiety and I feel like this goes For everybody I'm assuming just because I have my disabilities and I'm always terrified of what is out there
0: the unknown
9: the unknown because I'm not familiar with my surroundings right and I'm all I'm only really comfortable in my own space which is at my house but I feel like we shouldn't be limiting ourselves for experiencing and living life. And I always tell that to everybody, that it doesn't hold me back and it shouldn't hold me back from trying new things, doing what others are doing and seeing the world or seeing what's out there around my area and just kind of vibe out, have fun as well. Even though, I'm not going to lie, I'm always anxious. And it's just because I'm not comfortable, but then I have to experience it, I have to live it.
0: It's something that I empathize with, Mara. Um, There are a bunch of things to see and do around this city, and I don't do a lot of them because I find the places that I like. I find the subway stations that I'm comfortable with. I find the restaurants and bars and cafes that I'm comfortable with. And it's kind of easy to end up in that rut of comfort, which is partially a disability thing, but I also think it's a little bit of a human thing.
9: Of course, yes.
0: And... Uh yeah. So, so the experience itself, whether it be, uh, whether or not you were actually entertained or the accessibility, what did The Junction put on offer for you?
9: Okay, first of all, who thought of doing an live, in, I'm sorry, live entertainment Fridays and Saturdays? There's arcades now everywhere. I feel like everywhere you go, while you're waiting around for your actual movie time, the food, I mean, it wasn't like that before. So I just feel like it's just a good space overall with many things on top of just watching a movie. And you can have the both the best, like the both the best world. We have for stuff for the kids, stuff for the adults. So I was actually enjoying myself. My son was roaming around on his own with their arcades. and while I was just having my drink.
0: What about like, while the... we wait for the time? Yeah. What 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 about the accessibility experience?
9: Well they are coming out with many things for you know the legally blind and people that obviously can't hear as well but I feel like and there's actual um, things that you can use to make yourself hear better and see better but it does need a lot of work I'm going to be flat out honest because some movies are not compatible with the system that they are using and that's what we're doing you know we're advocating for these things that if you want these things to work you need the movies to actually be compatible with with all these like systems that provide for us to see better to hear better and overall I mean going the other route well it's spacious you're you have a lot of space to you know walk around wheelchairs and everything but I just feel like we need a lot of work in terms of really really experiencing this the movies in general, right?
0: Yeah, putting all the putting all the pieces yeah. together. Well, Cineplex Junction is located inside the Erin Mills Town Centre in Mississauga. For more information, you can call 905-412-2828. That's 905-412-2828 or visit cineplex.com. Okay, switching from movies to food, Toronto's food scene is going to light up later <laughs> this month. The annual Winterlicious <laughs> Festival will feature restaurants all across the city. Mara, what do you like about Winterlicious?
9: what i love about it is the fact that it you have three course meals for the for a good budget and these are you know very very well top of the line restaurants all across the gta and just kind of experiencing that vibe in terms of like you know really these are places that obviously i'm going to tell you flat out i can't afford because of my budget mm. so i'm you know and you can go for lunch with, like, a fixed um, menu and price. So I just feel like it's such a nice thing to do with friends, your families, and or if you want to have a date with somebody. I just feel like it's just a nice thing that that Toronto always comes out with. They have winter lishes, they have summer lishes, so I'm excited for
0: this. <laughs> How did you find navigating the website? Because obviously with so many yeah. restaurants participating, there could be a lot of information there.
9: So it changed a lot over the years, which I'm very, very excited about. Only because now, when you click on the restaurant that you are, you know, obviously focused on or interested in, it will tell you in the bottom that it of the actual information of the restaurant if it's accessible. And if you feel more comfortable about it, which I did, um, I would call the restaurant myself and ask questions and see, you know, is it is it this for me or is it what's going on over there and so on so before i actually make reservations i like to call them and just see if it's compatible for my comfort zone and my needs
0: yeah uh yeah that's it sometimes you have to go that extra step right just getting a checklist yeah. on a website might not quite be enough so Mara, but they
9: never had that before yeah that's what yeah. i'm so amazed so yeah
0: uh mara on the way out here what restaurants are you going to hit up
9: so for sure, I've always, been go- I've always been going to this place, Wildfire, with my husband. I'm excited to dress up and go on a date night with him. It's already booked. Nice. So yeah, it's, we've been going to this place for many, many years. And I'm going to actually hit up some girlfriends and see what else we can do and maybe bring out that date night with the girls and check out what's good for us.
0: (laughs) Fantastic. Hey, Mara, I've taken enough time of your vacation. Go back to be with your family. Have a lovely time. Safe travels.
9: Thank you so much for having me, guys. Have a great day.
0: That is Toronto community reporter Mara Hutchinson. Winterlicious runs in Toronto from January the 26th until February the 8th. For more information, you can email wintersummerlicious at toronto.ca. That's wintersummerlicious at toronto.ca. And licious is spelled L-I-C-I-O-U-S. And if you do want to check out that wildfire restaurant, it is located at the Executive Hotel Cosmopolitan in toronto <laughs> in one minute laura bain has the entertainment report but first there's a new device on the market for hardcore video gamers mike Debusky has the details in tech trends
8: from ABC News Tech Trends, a new gadget is clawing its way into the handheld gaming space. IGN's Taylor Lyle says it's called the MSI Claw. Essentially, just part of that emerging submarket where it's a hybrid between a handheld and also a whole gaming PC. She says the company is making a battery life argument with MSI claiming two hours of playtime on the device's most energy intensive settings. You don't have to tweak anything to lower the graphical settings or anything like that. I can get two hours out of that before I have to go down and charge it. The Claw is expected to start just under $700. That's more expensive than the top end Valve Steam Deck, one of MSI's main competitors. But Lyle says it's still cheaper than building your own gaming PC. If you're looking for something that will, you know, get the job done at a pretty good level without having to fork over a ton of money on the latest NVIDIA graphics cards. It'll do just that. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike
0: Deboski, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. From the world of video games to the world of movies, Laura Bain, the Academy Awards have put out their nominees this morning.
5: Yeah, that's right. Uh, As you said, Oscar nominations just came out. Uh, So we're just going to go over the list of the nominations for best pictures. There's American Fiction, Anatomy of a Fall, Barbie, The Holdovers, Killer of the Flower Moon, Maestro, Oppenheimer, Past Lives, Poor Things, and the Zone of Interest. It's kind of a long list. You know, I'm thinking as I'm reading it, Dave, that I'm like maybe, uh, you know, I'm sort of like auditioning here for my... (laughs) <laughs> to to read the uh read the award Maybe contact
0: me <laughs> on the doing the voiceover on the uh, the night of the show itself yeah laura that information obviously just dropped only a couple minutes ago so not a lot of time necessarily to react to the list but i don't think necessarily any major surprise is there a lot of those movies have no. been garnering buzz since their release over the course of the last 12 months
5: yeah, absolutely. And uh for sure uh some of what we've seen so far with uh previous like the Golden Globes and uh the Critics' Choice. Now, folks can catch the Oscars on March 10th. They're going to be hosted by Jimmy Kimmel. Hopefully, his jokes jokes are going to land a little better than those of Joe Coy at the Golden Globes. <laughs> we'll see. It's not his first time hosting it. So, uh, Now, none of those productions were filmed in Canada, Dave, mm. but uh, I wanted to bring forward another piece of news, which yeah, is that yeah, please. according to Movie Maker Magazine, who put out an annual list, Toronto has been named the number one best city to live and work in for those in the TV and film industry. Mm-hmm. Now, right away, you might think, what about Los Angeles and New York? So it's worth mentioning that those have been moved to their Hall of Fame, so they can no longer be in the running. They're just obvious choices. But the makers of this list actually suggest that even though those cities obviously are huge in terms of film and television, that folks don't start out there or even necessarily choose to live their kind of mid-career, but rather that they only sort of move to New York and Los Angeles once they've got to a point in their career where they're taking regular meetings there and maybe can afford to have a second residence. Mm-hmm. But that, um, you know, a better choice might be to look for a more livable, affordable city that still still has a strong industry <laughs> industry presence. I know where I can tell where we're going here there, but uh, they suggest that by taking away some of the stress of the high cost of living and challenging commutes, people will be able to focus more on their creative projects. I know you certainly don't think about challenging commutes and high cost of living when you think about toronto do you,
0: no do you? Ne- never not not once Laura. never would i think of toronto as a city that's too expensive and like largely unlivable that said that said i literally had dinner on Saturday night with a bunch of my friends who work in the acting world and work in the TV and film business. And they have a huge network and community here. There are major shows that film in Toronto. There's major movies that film in Toronto. The Toronto International Film Festival is obviously a big deal. There's a lot of grants and opportunities through government programs and cultural programs. And there's a couple of TV series that have really made Toronto home as a stand-in for New York at about <laughs> at about half the it's the, where there's huge hubs, right? Vancouver is a special effects hub, Montreal is a CGI hub and soundstage hub. These are wonderfully artistic towns with incredible vibrant So Montreal, Vancouver, that the, these are places that are making lists like this within the industry, because the caliber of the work that's coming out of these cities is top tier, and they are cheaper to live in than L.A. or New York.
5: Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, Montreal made it in at number 10, Calgary number eight, Vancouver number five. Now, I think you've pretty much touched on all of the points that they made in terms of why Toronto was voted number one. It moved up from its number four spot last year. I'm just looking here and I I think you've actually touched on like most of them, including its ability to look like other cities at (laughs) a cheaper price. So, you know, know your strength. Great Great studio space, 35,000 film and television workers, a great networking opportunity. Now, here's one you didn't mention that's interesting, is that Toronto is known for having the fastest turnaround time in North America for its filming permits. So I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing for a city it's certainly a good thing for those in the industry in a city um but yeah the tax incentives and great film and television uh, programs here and the international film festivals and they say affordable relative to similar u.s cities i don't know which cities as you say maybe los angeles and new york perhaps yeah, but probably yeah. not too many other
0: cities Probably San Fran, San Francisco, maybe uh, Seattle, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's a pricey one, uh, no doubt. Hey, Laura, that's a really interesting piece of data. Thank you for bringing it to the table this morning, and thank you for uh, your coverage here on the Oscars. I know that one kind of kind of spun up on us, but I appreciate it.
5: Yeah, my pleasure,
0: Dave. That's Laura Bain at the entertainment desk coming up after the break. The BC Transit strike continues in the Vancouver area. I've got an update to share with you. And then Brock Richardson stops by for a sports chat. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI TV and in streaming audio at AMIplus.ca. I'm Dave Brown. It's Tuesday, January the 23rd, 2024. Coming up in the second hour of the show, what's the best way to dress your guide dog during the winter? Not just guide dogs, it's all dogs. They all get cold and they've got those soft little paws. <laughs> Becky Czar will share some advice. And it's another edition of the Weekly News Quiz. Karen McGee returns to compete against Alex Smythe and Brock Richardson. I've cooked up some good questions for this one. Although a lot of them have already been addressed or answered on the show in the last five days. So if you're a keen and now with Dave Brown listener, you'll do a great job on the Weekly News Quiz. Speaking of the news, let's begin the hour with the regional news update. Over to British Columbia, BC Labour Minister Harry Baines is considering whether to appoint a special mediator in the dispute that's halted bus service in Metro Vancouver. The minister is urging Coast Mountain Bus Company and representatives for its 180 transit supervisors to get back to the negotiating table. I know two
10: sides understand their responsibility to the public, to their customers. And I urge them to get back to the table, to work out and end to this dispute and get transit riders moving again. There's so many people who depend on their
0: service. A 48-hour strike is underway that's impacting bus service as well as the C bus and causing significant trouble for people in West Vancouver and North Vancouver. Over to the prairies. Fee increases for single-use bags in Edmonton are going ahead as planned this summer. The fees local businesses charge customers are going to rise from 20 to 25 cents from 15 cents for a single-use paper bag paper bag. A November survey found the majority of respondents said they were already bringing their own bags to stores. The cost of a reusable bag is also going up from $1 to $2. I kind of want to bring this story to the news panel on Friday. I've still got a couple days to actually make my pitch to the panel, but I'm curious how you're experiencing the habit of trying to bring your own bags everywhere. Because the habit is doable, but it's not a 100% success rate, and my kitchen is currently overrun with reusable bags. That's your look at the regional news. Let's bring in Brock Richardson for a sports chat. I pose that question about reusable bags and I already hear Eliza Rocco down the hallway chatting away. I know this is something that sets her off. Maybe we can get Eliza to record a selfie video before the news panel on Friday. Hey, Brock, let's start in the world of Paris sports. There's been a resignation uh, for the women's wheelchair basketball coach in Canada. And that's the second resignation in a very short period of time.
11: Yes, it is. Uh, Paul Bose has uh, stepped down from his... Perch as head coach, and as you mentioned, this marks the second straight international event where uh, the coach has stepped down. We saw in 2023, Marnie Abbott-Peter step away from the game for personal reasons. This particular announcement with Paul did not cite personal reasons. It just said he's stepping down. This is a real critical time for the women's program and the men's program quite frankly it's the program uh wide they need to um you know get qualified for paris and so from having some conversations this is a very unsettling feeling from you know people that this is happening twice now in two consecutive international events and i just want to stress that If it is for personal reasons that we don't know, we do want to extend our, you know, uh, well wishes to Paul because, of course, if it is that, then we need to respect it. But it's just interesting news, Dave, and and it's interesting timing as well.
0: Well, what does it suggest to you, Brock? Because as you shared the story with me via email, I got to thinking about the stress and pressure. That goes along with the position of being the coach of a national team, probably one of the most marquee Paris sports, if you really get down to it as well. The focus on wheelchair basketball is always a big one. So you combine the stress with the reality that there's not necessarily a ton of glory or a lot of money in coaching para sports and how that equation ends up trickling down into the responsibility that goes along with being a head coach and head coaches asking themselves, is this actually worth it? I might be passionate about this team. I might be passionate about these sports, but in the context of rising cost of living and the increased focus and pressure, it's not for me.
11: Yeah, it, it, you're right. I mean, all across para sports, uh, coaches, Go through this with with cost of of living and then cost of traveling and things like that, so for me this is this is a real alarming thing and i and I wanna like take it a step further for the next person that they are in the hunt of looking for, as they said in their press release, we are in the hunt of looking for it might be a bit of a challenge to find someone because people might be looking at it going two coaches and two international events hmm you know what's going on so it would really have to be something that that's going to drive someone in to say i want to do this i'm going to do this for the for the team but we had the discussion on our on our neutral zone podcast about the idea of having um a player's own a player a player's coach and then as we sort of ironed that out we said mm, having a player's coach only while being part of the team is a real real tough situation, but they might have no choice because if they don't find someone, they need they need someone to lead it. So we had an extensive conversation on the, the latest uh, episode of the Neutral Zone, which drops uh, later today. But yeah, it's an interesting, interesting thing for sure. Brock, let's pivot to professional
0: sports. Rule changes in the National Hockey League. You were watching the Vancouver-Toronto game on Saturday night, and something came to mind for you late in the game.
11: Yes, so in this game, uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Vancouver Canucks were playing, and they, uh, the Leafs were down six to four with about three minutes left to go, and they decided to pull their goalie, which means they had an extra skater, six on five. Uh, uh, if Tur- if Vancouver iced the puck from one end to the other, they would be penalized with an icing which would mean then that the next faceoff would become in the Toronto attacking zone got me thinking Dave what would happen if we treated this like a regular penalty kill and you could ice the puck as you can if it's a two-minute minor and the um the team that has the penalty against them can ice the puck what would happen if we changed the rule here and said you may be able to get an extra attacker but we're going to treat it as a, as a penalty, and the team can ice the puck. What say you on this? Uh, I think
0: I like the idea of hanging out with Brock Richardson at about 10.30 on a Saturday night, but I think your idea is terrible um, because you're already at a significant disadvantage once you've pulled your goalie. You don't have a goaltender, right? When you're typically... When you're typically on a power play, uh, the opposing team is on a penalty kill cannot just fire the puck down the ice at an empty net. So the problem with saying that icing is now exempt from you when you're down on a six and five empty net scenario, you can just start wiring the puck at an empty net that you can't do while you're on a conventional penalty kill. I think it puts the attacking team at way too much of a disadvantage.
11: Yep, I, I can see that point as well. It was just one of those things where I was like, "Hmm, what happens if, but I also, I guess in my moment at 1030 at night and having this discussion, I, I did sort of forget, but not really in the sense of, well, yeah, there is an empty net. So that is the advantage of just being able to fire it down, which is very true. But yeah, it was just something that crossed my mind. Apparently I should not think of these things that... 10 30 at night no, because... keep,
0: keep brainstorming keep brainstorming just don't, don't be surprised if i shoot him down on just on a tuesday morning uh brock thank you for this have a great day you too that's brock richardson at the ami sports desk coming up after the break it's winter out there and your doggos are probably getting a little wet and a little cold so what's the best way to dress your dog or your guide dog up for the winter. Becky Czar will share some advice. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. After the last 10 to 12 days, there's no doubt that Canadians on the whole understand how to dress for winter, layers, layers, layers. But what about your furry friends? You know, the dogs have to go out, too, and that includes guide dogs. Becky Zarr has some ideas on how to dress your guide dog appropriately for the season. Becky's an entrepreneur based in Regina, Saskatchewan. Hey, good morning, Becky. Nice to chat with you.
12: Morning, Dave. Thanks for having me.
0: Becky, you've spoken about your guide dog, Lulu, before. Uh, How would you describe Lulu's feelings in regard to winter? (laughs)
12: <laughs> well i think if she could think or speak on her behalf i'm pretty sure she'd say she has like a love-hate relationship with winter as a season in general um she loves the snow she thinks that is the greatest thing um that ever happens is these magical little white pellets fall from this like the, from the sky and uh you know collect for her and then she can roll around in it squish her face in it um, jump and play in it. But, um, there's a line that she really doesn't want to cross when it comes to temperatures. So, um, we've had a really fabulous winter here in Saskatchewan. We've been so fortunate this year, um, with the exception of about 10 days to two weeks where it was just, you know, minus 45 to minus um, 50, with the wind chill, like it was frigid. Um, and so she wasn't overly impressed with that because that limits her walks, limits her playtime outside. And, Causes her to wear what she thinks are goofy clothes, um, her jacket, her boots, etc.
0: <gasps> Becky, paint the picture. What's it like trying to get the jacket <laughs> or the boots on Lulu?
12: Honestly, it's like a flashback to when Bennett was a toddler. Uh, my son's 13, but it is. It's like honestly like wrestling a toddler to try to get her stuff on. She uh, runs and hides as soon as I bring out the boots. Um, I swear she can recognize the Ziploc bag or hear the crinkle and she's like, uh-uh, not happening. Oh,
11: no. um, so she, yeah,
12: she'll she'll dodge me as much as she can. And it's like a quick game of hide and go seek. And I always win though with bribery with treats to lure her back in. So yeah, it's a good time, honestly. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I've, I've I've heard of that strategy uh, utilized before. Distractions with peanut butter. Peanut butter can go a long way for uh, for any doggo out there. So, what kind of decisions did you have to make about a coat? L- like you said, it got down to real cold in Regina for uh, for about ten days there in that minus forty zone, which is like that that's that's real cold. I, I grew up in Montreal. I say the numbers about minus twenty, minus twenty five before I start saying real cold. Minus forty. That is that is just awful, awful cold. So, what kind of decision? Did you make about a coat because not all coats are created equal.
12: No, it's true. Um so when I first got her, I was the new mom again and I went and I geared up and I got her a few options. Um the one that I default to on those really cold days, it's a roughwear brand. Um it's not super fashionable when it comes to color because I could only get it in gray which is kind of to me a little bit of a humdrum color for this beautiful girl but um <laughs> i also have a lighter version in a pink um my mom has gone to the extent of knitting her sweaters like turtleneck sweaters which lulu i'm pretty sure if i could see her was like rolling her eyes at that extent um but there's an application for each of them and on those cold days it's not about fashion it's not about looking like the cool kid it's about dressing warm and um bearing through the temperatures properly
0: Yeah, I take care of a friend's dog pretty frequently, and uh, she has about four or five different coats, including raincoats and winter coats and fall coats. I'll tell you, Becky, though, I don't often put them on her when I'm unsupervised. The winter coat, but if it's raining, no, 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 no. You're going to get wet just like me.
12: Totally, totally. (laughs) And then you whip out the boots. So we don't say the B word in our house um, because it's a trigger word. Oh, She's very no, oh, smart. Oh no! And uh, like I said, she can hear her when I'm bringing out the bag and stuff too. But um, honestly, when it comes to boots, I've really struggled, and so that's why I thought I'd bring forward this topic. I've bought the expensive boots. I won't name brands. Um, I've I've tried, you know, honestly, a few different kinds, and invested a significant amount of cash in them, and I've had troubles in a couple of aspects. Um, for those that they work for, that's awesome. Lulu doesn't like to have the sole feeling, I think of a shoe type boot on her foot. I think that it loses some of the sensation, uh, or so I hear uh, that she needs for that feedback below her toes, uh, for navigation. And then I also had troubles with keeping them on her actual Right. right. Um, and, As someone, yeah, like as someone they can't see, I can't just glance down and be like, yep, four boots, let's keep rolling. It's like a stop, halt, frisk, check, okay, let's keep going. We got four. And then suddenly it's like, uh-oh, I only have three. And the last checkpoint was between here and here. And then I have to send out, you know, if I can't figure it out myself, which most of the time I can't because the snow is too deep or whatever. Um, I send out my sighted, lovely son to go and do an SOS find on these boots because they're so expensive. And you can't buy them in like a one pack or two pack for the like the lost souls, right? You had to buy the whole case of four all
0: over again. You may have just come up with a great business branding concept right there, lost souls, single shoes to replace you other like shoes. Yeah, I like that a lot.
12: Let's get it started. Come on. <laughs> um, but I have found this lovely um, business based out of the Yukon and this delightfully talented woman named Joanne, who has really made my life so much easier. And Lulu's when it comes to the whole boot scenario in the winter. Um, so if you go onto Facebook, because they don't have a website, it's called Borealis Kennels and Pet Specialties. Um, it's located, like I said, in the Yukon, but she hand makes these little boots and I'm going to describe them like a little sack, almost like a little bag. They're nothing like, I'm going to say intricate, um, but they stay on, they don't have a sole. They, they doesn't even designate top from the bottom. So if you, if you monkey that up and you put the top and the bottom, bottom, on the top from one time to the next, the only thing that's going to mess up is like, it might be a little bit dirtier. Right. Um, and she's got this magical Velcro tape. I don't know where she finds it, um, or who whittles it, but it's amazing because Lulu's been wearing them for two years and. I haven't lost one. I haven't even come close to losing one. And she humors me by wearing them. Dave, I'm so, I'm so pumped.
0: (laughs) Borealis kennels and pet specialties. Borealis kennels and pet specialties. You mentioned, uh, they're on Facebook. If you don't mind my asking, you can tell me Dave, that's a jerk question. I don't want to answer it. What did they, what did they cost?
12: Dave, it was so cheap. Um, so She sells them, brace yourself, for $5.50 a pair, Canadian. And so it comes to $11 for four booties. Like, I thought, are you dropping a zero? Is this in some sort of different, (laughs) I don't know, cryptocurrency funds? I don't know what's going on, but like, it was amazing, plus shipping. Um, So I will say shipping, I mean, for me, I ordered three pairs um, because we had to be able to switch them up. And there was different types that she offers for different climates. Um, It was 20 bucks. Well, so, I mean, I think that's totally fair. So she bases it on the amount of um, boots, the order and stuff. So she said that she, if she can wedge it into an envelope, it's like two fifty. Um, So, and if Lulu happens to blow a boot or two, I can order a boot or two from her and she will mail them to me and life goes on and it's amazing. So I've been shouting from the rooftop about this amazing product because it makes my life so much easier. Lulu's like, okay, whatever. We can put the boots on. Um, I'm still <laughs> feeling like the cool kid in town, but she doesn't run and hide to the extent. Like she'll actually come out and I can bribe her, like I said, with a treat. Before it was like, no go, not happening. Her paws were sucked in under her tummy and um, I was on my own. So um, if anybody is is, you know, curious, I think it's worth the investment. Um, It's fairly inexpensive. Like I said, shoot her a private message on through her, um, her Facebook page there, and she will return your contact or your information and uh, get them out to you and show you all the different little patterns and stuff like that, or tell you about it because she was very narrative to me to explain the scenario. She's a guide dog. And uh, yeah, it's amazing. She actually even puts them on or sells them to people who have mushing dogs um, doing the the sled deal up, you know, way up north and stuff. so to me, that's tried and tested.
0: Uh, yeah, The people in the Yukon understand winter maybe even better than the folks in the prairies, Becky. Not that we're going to make any aspersions.
12: No, I mean, I they can take that hat and <laughs> carry that title. I'm, I'm totally cool yeah. with that.
0: I'll tell you who doesn't understand. It's people in southern Ontario, these softies in Toronto. Becky, yeah. uh, thank you for this. I appreciate it. You
12: bet. Thanks
0: for your time. Take care. Borealis kennels and pet specialties. Borealis kennels and pet specialties, too. I'll learn more about those boots. That's Becky Czar, an entrepreneur in Regina, Saskatchewan. Coming up after the break. Ooh, I think this story's coming out of the Yukon, too. It changes to nut policies in schools. Alex Smythe has a story out of Whitehorse, Yukon. And has a couple questions for myself and Ramya Amuthin. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. A reminder about the Daily Poll, which you can find at Accessible Media on X or at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. It's been almost three years since Greyhound shut down bus service between Canadian cities. How has that affected you and your region? A lot, a little, or not at all? Big thank you again to Megan Gilmore of Canadian Affairs for stopping by to talk about some of the journalism around that story, but your opinion matters on that one too. Turning over to Alex Smythe. Alex Smythe, there's a change to some nut policies at a school in Whitehorse.
4: Yeah, Dave, I came across this story the the other day uh, on the weekend, and I, I thought it was an interesting uh, concept. So uh, in Whitehorse, it call Emily Tremblay, I hope I... They did pretty good. You did pretty good. Um, they 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 unveiled a plan to change the policy around uh, their their allowance of, of nuts, tree nuts, uh, peanuts in the classroom. So originally it was a blanket ban. They decided to change it up. That now any grade three and up there is no ban, no restriction around nuts in the classroom. However, in kindergarten, grade one and grade two, there will only be a ban or restriction if there is a student in the classroom that has a nut allergy. The rationale provided for why they're taking this step is they said that based on consultations, things like that, they found that nut bans just outright bans provide a false sense of security. Whereas awareness, education are far more effective in trying to make sure that people are in a safe space when it comes to things like nuts and allergens. So I, I thought this was an interesting idea, interesting approach. I wanted to bring it to the round table and wanted to get first a reaction to what you guys think about this change in policy. So uh, Ramya, if you're there, what do you think of the change in the policy around nuts in the school?
2: Okay, so I'm not sure how much I can speak on what I think of this, because, like, where's the science rationale, right? Like, they were talking about consultation and uh, education versus just, like, outright bans and false sense of security. That sounds fine on, like, a social point of view, but what does it mean for the people with severe nut allergies? Like, we had... People, when I was in grade two, for example, uh, one of the students, Victor, had a severe nut allergy and there was no way like there was there yeah. was no um, way you could bring nuts into the school. Your Oh Henry bars had to stay at home like it was serious stuff. And, you know, at any pen at any time he could need to use an EpiPen. So the entire school went nut free. Uh, and I'm wondering if like the rationale that this school provided for, you know, certain age groups, certain grades, and, you know, let's keep the conversation fluid is really going to tackle the actual challenges, the actual life-threatening, life, uh, nut allergies that students may be coming into school with.
0: Alex, I think you touched on it a little bit there, but it's worth reiterating, right, that if there is a nut allergy present, that if there's a self-identified nut allergy, the ban will go into effect for that classroom.
4: Uh, for, for kindergarten grade one and grade two, Dave.
0: Yeah. Only grade limited. three
4: and up, there is no restriction, even if there is an allergy oh, in the classroom.
0: Pfft. Well that's preposterous then because some that's people are because yeah, some people are severely allergic to the point that touching a peanut or smelling a peanut will send them into anaphylactic shock. Yeah. There's there's no amount of there's no amount of awareness training that can fix that.
4: That's yeah and, and so I, I i think what uh what they're trying to to kind of uh try to do with this change in policy is i i think the rationale kind of extends to well at a certain point there's not going to be nut free zones and so they're trying to kind of get it to the point that people have to kind of sort of self-advocate and and uh, protect themselves but i agree with you even at grade three and grade four and five like these it's are still nine-year-olds young, nine-year-olds are still nine-year-olds kids. are stupid exactly. And it's like, how, how responsible are they going to be if they have like a peanut butter sandwich or something? Are are they going to really be washing their hands all that effectively? What is it right. to, just like any other sickness, let alone in a classroom? Like, are you really taking all the precautions necessary to keep others around you safe, especially when it's something like a severe nut allergy? It is it's such a, a hard issue to tackle and it, it's very interesting that the school has taken this approach. They thought, okay, let's, let's do this. It'd be very different if it's like, a, hey, if there are no uh, uh, allergies within the classroom, then no ban. If there is, then it, it becomes very specialized and very focused. I would be much more comfortable with something
0: like that. Yeah, I, I yeah. think there... Mm-hmm. Sorry, Rami, l- 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 I'm going to jump in here yeah. for a second. I, I, just, I just think that you need to be thinking about this a little bit more holistically, that it's not simply the matter of biting into a peanut that is going to mm-hmm. set off a reaction here. Mm-hmm. I also think that the second there's any allergy in the entire school, you need to be very cognizant of this. I, I've told you guys this before, now, th- that this is changing the context or the scope of the conversation a little bit. When I moved to Ontario and started attending Algonquin College. There were a few people with very severe scent allergies in my program, and I was someone who used to wear cologne every day. And the first day I came in, and someone was like, "You can't do that. There's there's a scent ban here." I was like, "Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Like that's like that is something that I want to get. Like I, I want to make sure that I'm 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 taking care of the people around me, even if you know I get a little self conscious about my stank a little bit here and there. But yeah, I, I, Ramya I I think about these situations as being it's it's not just a three-meter radius where a peanut nope. ban matters. And, 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 and I do accept the counterpoint where, like, the entire world is not going to be nut-free, but I think a school is, like, pretty much a place that's worth saying, we can offer some control about the amount yeah. of nuts or scents that are going to be in here.
2: Yeah, even the approach to this, I think, like saying certain age groups but not other age groups, it makes no sense to me. Like, what's the intention behind that? I think something more intentional would be like this part of the school is nut free, this part of the school is not. Like, I I could get on board with something like that over, uh, you know, K to three, <laughs> yeah. no nuts, and then four to six, you know, feel free to bring in your old Henry butts. Like, I, I to be honest, it doesn't even the messaging sounds very unintentional um and and I agree with you Dave because I've gone into the the awareness of scent allergies and and all that as well and just being people having a lot of sensitivity to scent and it's not just about you know me wanting to wear my perfume but it, some people have like tbis right brain injuries where uh they can't they literally cannot walk into a room and have overwhelming scents it's it's too much for them it's sensory overload so i've been in the same situation where like i've put myself uh you know heavily Sent itself in a, a, a circumstance in <laughs> classrooms and places where people have had to say, like, you got to get out of here. Um, but, you know, it's awareness. And I think that this is kind of lacking that.
0: Yeah. Alex, I just I'm really struggling with their rationale. I also wonder who was advocating for this other than, than maybe a couple parents who were cranky. They couldn't send their kids with uh, right. peanut butter sandwiches to, to school anymore. Well, and there, there has always along as long as it's a
4: nut uh, bans have been placed there's always been those arguments around the the cost right because a peanut butter is a relatively inexpensive meal that provides high protein for kids and there's always been that argument in place I love peanut butter and, and and like a lot of people love peanut butter I I love peanut butter as well it, it's there there is something to that but I I think for one meal a day there adjustments are are Available that you you can have a substitution that you can ensure your child is still getting enough protein. If if it's an issue, well then you can look at other meals throughout the day. You know you're supposed to have three meals a day. You can look at other ones for for having a more affordable option just for the safety of other kids and the. Other uh, area where I look at it, it's like nuts has always been uh, the the one allergy that really gets the headlines because it's one of the most uh, prevalent. But there are other allergies that kids oh, live yeah. with oh, that are yeah. just as severe. And then you guys touch on it with scents and stuff, but like. They, other food allergies never quite get the same attention, the, the same level of, of care or precaution. And so mm-hmm. it's like, I, I think maybe that could be part of it. It's like, well, we don't do it for any other allergens like this. We're like, why should we only do it for for peanuts? Maybe that may be part of the argument, just trying to identify the yeah. other side.
0: Yeah, no, I, 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 I get I get what you're saying there, Alex, in terms of a multitude of allergies that can exist. You even get this sometimes with, uh, with people wanting to bring their guide dogs into a classroom and people say, oh, I've got a dog allergy, can't do it, right? And you get these sort of competing interests of accessibility and Ramya, as 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 we sort of try to land the plane on this somewhat difficult topic, I do think this is another example of sort of the onus of self-identification being put on people who have a need rather than broad-based policy that's more inclusive. And I, I know that tips my hand on where I land on this topic in general, but again, it's this, it's this incredible increasing onus on like gotta self-identify gotta self-identify gotta self-identify or we can't give you things
2: yeah and it's fair because like this is a really good example of that case right it's fair because you know there's it's an entire school it's people of all kinds of different needs and the self-advocacy plays a big part into this but i also think there is a lot of empathy to be had right like it's not necessarily like a we need to shut down peanut butter and you know that sucks like we got to understand that this is a very very nuanced conversation like overall there are people who yeah when they have peanut butter their allergies are triggered but then there are others who like you said literally cannot be around the the substance um or the trace of nuts and that cross-contamination is a bigger conversation so i don't know i guess it's not necessarily self-advocacy if you're in kindergarten, but, yeah, the parents and, you know, everyone has to get involved.
0: Yeah, Alex, I do I do think there is a lesson here about self-advocacy and probably a conversation point about self-identification and maybe teaching kids from a young age to, to do that. But it seems like a really dangerous stakes to be messing around with.
8: Right. Yeah, and
4: I, I think too you you hope to, there's the level of empathy that uh, the classmates, especially if it's a kid <laughs> in your class that you know you know and you've grown up with them that they have a nut allergy. You're just not gonna have nuts, or if you you get it in your bag, you're just not gonna eat it. You know, and same mm-hmm. thing with the parents. You just hope that there is this level of understanding, even if the school itself doesn't in uh, like kind of impose a restriction around it that you're you just you can forego having a a nut based or nut included Uh, a snack or or meal within the lunches. You just hope that there's there's that understanding that we're not just, oh, this is uh, only, uh, my child is the only one that matters in this situation. No one else matters. Like, let's just be nice to each other. Are
0: are you expecting humans to have good faith to one another, Alex? Like, come on, man, like, this is wild. Okay, let's try to end this on a little bit of a smile. Uh, Alex, what is your favorite nut or legume? Ooh, I... I really love pecans because I think they're oh yeah, good one answer. of the
4: best good ones answer. that can be dessert and like a snacking one. You can dress it up, you can make it fancy, you can decorate it with spices and herbs and all this stuff. Or you can just have it base on the
0: side. It's very versatile. Good that's a good a, a good answer, Alex. Good yeah. answer. Uh what about you?
2: I love them all, but I will say cashews for the same oh, reason, Alex. Oh, Spiced cashews, candied oh. cashews, all the cashews, please.
0: Oh my gosh, I just, I just got just. By the way, some...
2: I prefer almond butter over peanut butter.
0: Oh, okay, we. we can have that conversation on a different day, Ramya. Don't throw those boomerangs at me right at the end of the conversation. <laughs> we have to get to the news quiz. Uh, the hum, The humble almond. The humble almond is also a delicious yeah. thing, oftentimes covered in chocolate. Uh, Alex, mm-hmm. don't go too far because you're coming back for the news quiz. Rumya, you don't go too far either because you have to tell me what's coming up on Kelly and Ramya today at two p.m. Eastern time.
2: Absolutely, we have reflexology with our wellness contributor Francis Wong. She's going to tell us what it is, how it's helpful, also why it's different than just a regular massage. Uh, we're also going to talk to woodworker Jeff Thompson today. He's telling us how we can frame, so frame our pictures, oh, uh, also gracious. put up our put up our curtain rods You know, he helped me like just with verbal instructions put up my own curtain rods which i'm super proud of and i'll bring up later on the show no uh, way. Also, <laughs> yeah.
0: story time with jeff and rumia
2: no oh, it's gonna be so fun uh also we're talking about getting medication into our pets very very difficult job for some pets and especially if you got to pill them so that's what we'll be talking about and also getting into like the compound chemicals and such with dr daniel uh,
0: peanut butter the answer the answer is peanut butter or cheese it's, 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 it's kind it's kind of like giving me pills. Put it in peanut butter or cheese, and it's going to go down (laughs) real smooth. Uh, Ramya, thank you for this. Have a great day. You too. That is Ramya Amuthan. You can find Kelly and Ramya, 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Coming up next, it's another edition of the Weekly News quiz. Karen McGee returns to compete against Alex Smythe and Brock Richardson, who will take the crown. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Another edition of the Weekly News Quiz on Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. That music always gets me fired up. I know it gets you fired up, too. It gets the contestants going as well. Let's see whose competitive juices are flowing the best today. Is it Alex Smythe? Hello again, Alex. Hello, Dave. Is it Brock Richardson? Hello again, Brock. Hello. And I think we all know the answer is that it's Karen McGee. Hello, Karen.
10: I'm very, I'm not competitive at all.
0: Not in the least. All right. Let's quickly go over the rules of the game just in case they changed in the last seven days. There are three rounds of questions with three questions per round. Each question has three options. You can answer without hearing the options and get two points. If you need the options and get it right, you get one. If you get it wrong, you are mocked and another contestant can try and steal the point. Paul Daniel, was away yesterday, so I wrote the questions and picked the order. So blame me if you don't like it. The order is Karen, Alex, and Brock. So, Karen, you get the first crack at this. Canadian retail is getting a shakeup. Best Buy will be partnering with another store as part of a rebrand. What retailer is it?
10: Oh, I read this and I. Totally thought this was a weird connection, but I'll take the options.
0: Is it The Source, GameStop, or Indigo?
10: Ooh, I wouldn't have said any of those. Uh, I'll say The Source.
0: That is correct. One point for Carrie McGee. That's right. I had this as part of my newscast on Friday, so there's an advantage to listening to the show when I write the news quiz. Over 100 source locations will be rebranded as Best Buy Express. All right, Alex, a question for you. A streaming service announced that their monthly fee for an ad-free tier is going up to $24. What service is it? Uh, That was Crave, I believe, Dave. Yeah, that one was a little unfair because Alex was riding shotgun in segment one on Friday, but I still thought it was fair to give him an opportunity. That's an increase of $2 on the ad-free tier. So Alex has two points. Karen has one. Brock, a little pressure on you here. A little pressure on you here with question number three of round number one. But this is one that I think you should know as well. A Canadian city is considering creating a 24-hour party zone in its downtown core. What city is it? Um, I need the options, which is annoying. Is it Vancouver, Calgary, or Montreal? I think it's Vancouver. That is incorrect. Karen, a chance for a steal. Is it Montreal? That is correct. One point for Karen McGee. So after round one, all tied up at the top, Karen with two and Alex with two. Alex, you get the uh, first crack at round number two, though, and all these questions are going to be related to sports. I kept Paul Daniels' mechanism in place here. So, Alex, the professional women's hockey league season rolls on. Who currently leads the league in goal scoring? In goal scoring? Uh, I'll need the options, please, Dave. Is it Alex Carpenter, Marie-Philippe poulet or Grace Zemwinkle? Uh, I'm gonna go with uh, Poulain. That is correct, one point for Alex Smythe. Poulin has six goals, but that could uh, change as there's a couple more games happening tonight. Okay, Brock, I've got a football question for you here. I hope you get it, because you're the sports guy. The NFL playoffs continued over the weekend. Which team drew the
11: highest attendance? Oh, um, I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with
0: Baltimore. That is incorrect. Karen, do you want options, or do you want to take a stab at this?
10: I'm tempted to say Buffalo. I'm going to say Buffalo. That is incorrect. Oh.
0: Alex, do you want to take a stab at this or do you want oh. options? Because uh, there's only to really... go with Detroit, Dave. That is incorrect. Two points oh. for me. Boom. <laughs> oh. San Francisco. Nearly 72,000 people attended Saturday's game between uh, Green Bay and San Fran. By the way, Santa Clara, not San Francisco. But we're not going to get caught in semantics today. Uh, but f- who guessed Baltimore? Karen, did you guess Baltimore? No. Brock, no, you I did Baltimore. Baltimore. Baltimore only had a few hundred people less than San Francisco, so it was close. It was close, but uh, just under 72,000 people attended that game on Saturday night. So now, after... Uh, Two questions of two rounds. Alex has three. Karen has two. I have two. And Brock is at zero. So, Brock, you got to do some work here. But Karen gets the next opportunity. Karen, Hockey Day in Canada was held in Victoria, British Columbia on Saturday. What Ontario town hosted it in 2023?
10: Oh, 2023. Oh, okay. Okay. Give me the choices, but I'm 99% sure that I know, but I don't want to give points to anybody else.
0: I I like your strategy, but I want to get these points too, and now you've taken them away from me. I'm very upset at you. Belleville, Owen Sound, or Sudbury?
10: Oh, the one I thought isn't there. Um, I'm going to say... Owen oh, Sound. That's wrong.
0: Bingo bongo. That's correct. Oh, it is right. That's right. I was, it was... <laughs> thinking
10: Aurelia. I was thinking Aurelia for some reason. Yeah. It's The O.
0: Too many. Too many cities. Too many cities with O's in them in Ontario. We got to. We got to work on that. We got to. We got to figure that out. All right. So Karen gets that one right. So after two rounds, we've got Karen and Alex in a dead heat with three each. I'm at two, and Brock is <laughs> at zero. Now. There's actually a news update on this one that I'll share after the answer. But here's the question as I wrote it yesterday. (laughs) Loblaws will no longer be offering a 50% discount on food that is about to expire. They're lowering that number. Brock, what is the discount that they're going to be offering?
11: I'm going to take a stab at 30%. Bingo! Two points for
0: Brock Richardson. Now the uh, news update on this is that Loblaws announced yesterday they are backtracking on that policy change after unsurprisingly a lot of negative feedback, including from uh, this guy right here on uh, Now with Dave Brown, because I'm fighting for you and your dollars because I care about you. I love you, listener out there in viewer vortex and uh, listener All right, this game is getting real tight. Real tight. Karen McGee, This question's headed to you. Alberta NDP leader Rachel Notley announced her resignation last week. Notley served as premier for a few years last decade. What year did Notley win the provincial election?
10: I'll take the choices, please.
0: Was it 2014, 2015, or 2016?
10: I'll say 2014.
0: That is incorrect. Alex, an opportunity for a big steal here.
4: Yeah, in my mind I had uh, 2016, but I'm gonna
0: go 2015. That is correct. Your mind did oh. not betray you. Uh, you know, Alex is a former Albertan, so this question should have been uh, should have been a slam dunk for old Alex. All right, so that's a big that's a big one for Alex. That puts Alex into a, a commanding lead with one more question to go. Oh boy, Alex Smythe. Well, I guess you're only up by two. You're only up by two over Brock and only one over Karen. So you got to be careful how you handle this. Got to be careful yeah. how you handle this one. Former U.S. President Donald Trump won the Iowa caucus last week. Who finished in second place?
4: Well, it was uh, uh, someone who wanted it to be uh, a more competitive race, but it ended up being that they, they uh, dropped out of the race
0: soon after. It was Ron DeSantis. That is correct. Ron DeSantis finished in second place, just barely ahead of Nikki Haley, who's still alive in the New Hampshire primary tonight. Ron DeSantis, his super PAC, spent over $150 million in Iowa to get about 20% of the vote. So that's uh, that's not great. Too much money in politics. <laughs> not to editorialize too far. Okay, with that, the winner is... smite crushing it out of the park all right there's uh, two minutes left on the clock here let's get to the tie-breaking question i'm convinced that karen mcgee is going to hit this right oh. on the number i'm putting all the pressure <laughs> do all the pressure do on that. you karen mcgee so the <laughs> rito <do> the, <laughs> the rito canal opened on sunday for public skating how thick does the ice need to be before oh. the public is allowed to skate? Karen, I'm not letting you go first, but but I but I feel, well, you actually made a pretty negative affirmation there. Let's start with Brock. Brock, how thick does the ice need to be on the Rideau Canal for it to open for public skating?
11: Uh, Let's go with
0: four inches. Four inches. Can you give me that in centimeters?
11: No, okay. Um... <laughs> so no it's, that's that's a,
0: that's a, four inches is about 12 centimeters about 12 centimeters give give, give okay. or take give or take a little bit so i'm gonna i'm gonna put you down for 12 you want to you want to change you want to change that number
11: okay if we're doing it in centimeters let's say 20 okay that, that's a nice a, that's round. a
0: that's a big change i thought we were only gonna move a yeah. centimeter or two there based on my bad math okay. alex how thick does the ice have to be
4: okay in centimeters i'm gonna go with um and we're are we doing like closest to number without going over?
0: Uh no, you can go over. Okay. Um then I will go I'll go sixteen centimeters. Sixteen centimeters. Karen McGee, I feel like you've got this in your pocket.
1: So the
10: number thirty five is sticking in my head, but I don't know if that's centimeters or inches, but I'm gonna say thirty five centimeters.
0: So Karen McGee gets it. Well done. Well done. You were closest to the pin. You were off by a little bit, though. 30 centimeters. Oh. One foot oh, thick. 30. One foot thick the ice needs to be. Uh, Karen McGee, there's literally a minute left on the clock here. I was trying to explain on air yesterday the significance of the canal to, like, the culture of the city of Ottawa. How big a deal is the Rideau Canal?
10: It's huge. It didn't open last year, and it was traumatic for a lot of people because it's people use it to get to work people use it for exercise it is a whole entity onto itself this time of year it is so exciting i was in florida when it opened and i was all excited going i get to skate with the canal <laughs> next week <laughs>
0: do you it's re- wild do you remember in january 2015 you sent myself dan Forges, and Dar- darcy mcgee onto the Rideau canal darcy to- mcgee darcy to tony uh, uh, darcy <laughs> <laughs> historical figure Darcy De Tony onto the ice on the Rideau Canal on a Friday afternoon when it was minus 35 with wind chill and you made us film a bunch of stand-ups for an AMI This Week episode. I, I, it's you're, not,
2: s- you're still bitter. It's you're not, still it's bitter, not it's, I oh,
0: I'm still shivering, that's for sure. Karen McGee, thank you. Brock, thank you. Alex, thank you. Thank you. As well, if you tuned in on the old TV set or you're listening at amiplus.ca or on your favorite podcasting platform, Now with Dave Brown, we'll be back tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun.